Morning. Morning. Morning all. Uh, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to revisit the same passage we went over last week. Um, actually, to really teach through the pas- these passages, go ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll read verse 16 and then 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 30. Uh, so we're talking about communion all month this month. Okay, Every Sunday in January, there's five of them. We're going to talk about communion next week. Uh, we're going to be in the Old Testament mostly, looking at foreshadowings um, and just a, a reference point for Jesus and the disciples. And, uh, you know, they had Bibles, they read them. Uh, and and looking at Old Testament foreshadowings of communion. The week after that, we're going to look at uh, the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, mostly in the Gospels, of course, and a little bit into um, the Acts and, and the Epistles. And then the week after that, we'll look just at this passage in 1 Corinthians. We'll just do the We'll return to our verse-by-verse study in Corinthians with this passage. Um, but now what we're, what we're trying to do is not only study it, but obey it, uh, which is the tricky part, isn't it? Uh, so let's, let's read this passage, find out what the instructions are, and then I'll explain um, how we're going to do this morning's uh, sermon, uh, which is a little bit different. But 1 Corinthians 10, 16 It says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And then in chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 27, it says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to take uh, your word seriously. We want to take you seriously. Uh, We want, by whatever means necessary, to, uh, to increase our appetite for you or really correct our misplaced appetites, thinking we could have joy or or satisfaction anywhere but you, Jesus. So we look to you. We're wanting your presence. We're wanting an understanding of you and your word and how you meet with us. But even past our understanding, we want your presence even when we can't understand it. Um, So be with us, please. Holy Spirit, minister to your church just as you promised to do. Let us have fellowship with God. We ask that for your glory, for the good of your people. Amen. Last Sunday... Uh, I made an attempt to uh, point out that communion is an essential and unique way of meeting with Christ. It's a blessing that God has given you. It's something that you get to receive and say thank you for. Uh, It is also irreplaceable. It's not just interchangeable with other devotions. It's not like you have the buffet and you get to either read our daily bread or take communion. Like one of of those things is, is, is necessary for the church. Um, I also shared my observations with, and really my confession that we just don't seem to take this all that seriously. And on that point, please take that as my personal confession, as well as an observation of church culture at large, not as a pointed attack on any individual here. You might be the exception of all of these things, but Christians, for the most part, in Western evangelical society, are more or less apathetic about this thing that we do. And I believe our apathy has done us harm. Uh, The good news, of course, and there's plenty of it, 
But one piece of the good news is that Jesus, who has given himself to us, is patient with us, even with our apathy and our carelessness. And as we desire to draw near to him, he has promised to draw near to us. And you can be confident that this it was his idea to meet you way before you had the idea of meeting with him. We want to meet with Jesus. That's the bottom line. That's the point. That's why we're gathering here. That's why we're uh, taking a, a, a deeper look at communion. We want to meet with Jesus and we can have all the confidence in the world that Jesus is willing to meet with us. Now, I believe that we as Christians need to take this seriously, and I do not believe that we arrive at that seriousness with uh, just a reverence that is arrived at by dressing up a ritual and fancier clothes, uh, so to speak. I don't want to convince you of anything other than the power and the presence of Christ. Uh, I want you to hunger for and be satisfied in Jesus himself. That is why we take it seriously, because we want to take Jesus himself seriously. Paul was telling the Corinthians to take the meal a lot more seriously than they were taking it, right? And we'll talk about the details of Corinth and everything like that at the end of the month. He, he says, you, you need to think about this before you take it. Don't come here carelessly. Be sure you know what you're doing. And even saying that there were some in the church who were sick and some who had died because they took lightly something that Christ did not take lightly. Paul offers them this warning. Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Could this be more serious? So we examine ourselves. And part of that examination, that, that examination may take on different forms, even week for week for some of you. But part of that examination is simply looking at your heart, taking stock and confessing your sins to God, getting right with him. And again, it's his idea for, to make you right with him way before you came up with that idea. He is desiring to reconcile with you in every way possible. Um, you know, you, we come to the Lord and we pray, we pray the words of Psalm 139 where it says, Try me, know my anxiety, see if there's any wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. And the good news, once again, he will lead you in the way everlasting. So Paul says, examine yourselves, and that's what we're trying to do. But we're also trying to discern the Lord's body. He says some drink judgment upon themselves because they don't discern the Lord's body. To discern is to, to, discern is to distinguish or to identify. It's to separate holy from unholy in this case. The passage in chapter 10, Paul says, this is fellowship or communion with the body and blood of Christ. And in chapter 11, he says, examine yourselves and know what you're doing. And part of knowing what you're doing is seeing what's holy and what, what isn't. And then he says there's consequences for not recognizing the difference between, you know, a common meal, which is what they were having, and this. Part of that self-examination that we're called to is really an attempt at figuring out what we believe about communion. So today's message is going to look a little different uh, because it will be a little bit less like a sermon and a lot more like a church history class. Uh, don't get used to it, okay? Um, we we come and, to church here, and we go through books of the Bible every single verse. That's what we do. None of that's changing. Um, every now and then, uh, we do something a little bit different, and this one's a little bit more than a little bit different. Uh, doing, doing something like this on a Sunday morning is admittedly unusual, and I promise it's not something you have to get used to. Uh, but the reason we're, we're doing this and looking at what has the church done about this in some eras— of, of church history, is we're trying to obey Paul's command in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight to examine ourselves in this. We're asking ourselves, why do we think the way we think? And I know that for many, 
evangelical churches, communion has become next to nothing, basically meaningless. And last week I asked the question, how did we get there? How did we arrive at a place where it's, it's just nothing? Hopefully I'll be able to offer some sort of answer to that question today. One more disclaimer, you get a, a few. When you are studying your spiritual ancestors, church history, you are not doing that in order to discover what you need to become. Uh, you don't dig into genealogical records, find out that your great-great-grandfather was briefly a miner in Australia, and then say, it all makes sense now. Me and my pickaxe need to move to Australia. Also, side note, I just learned that my great-great-grandfather was briefly a miner in Australia. That was news. Thanks for that, Grandma. Um, so we're, we're, not, we're not looking at... I'm, I'm going to mention some church fathers, some, some reformers, you know, around the time of the... Uh, the Reformation, and, and say what they said about communion. and it's, But we're not doing that in order to look at them and say, that that's what I need to be when I grow up. But we, we can look at our spiritual ancestors, see what they thought, see what they wrote, and we can see some patterns, and we would be like, oh, that's why we are the way that we are. Sometimes, as in studying family history, you might begin to see patterns that are continuing to play out. So you ready for some family history, some church family history? Okay, let's go. Uh, Really, our history should begin with Israel, right? Because that's our ancestor. We're grafted into that rootstock. But for that, you're going to have to wait till next week because we're going to go through the Old Testament and see how it anticipates communion. Lots of Bible verses, more than you can count. Okay, prepare yourselves. Uh, but we're going to start this week instead with the first generation of Christians after the apostles. Uh, there is a church manual called the Didache, which means teachings of the Twelve, uh, which may be the earliest Christian document outside the New Testament. Um, it was written... In the early 2nd century, that's the 100s for all of you that need to figure that out whenever we do that, that thing, okay, 100s, uh, maybe even at the end of the 1st century, uh, which would make it not too much younger than the book of Revelation. And it's, it's just kind of a, here's the rules for how we do church kind of document. Um, it speaks of baptism, uh, daily prayer, they pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Also says which days of the week they all fasted, Wednesdays and Fridays, and then it's kind of funny, and then some editor, church secretary person, you know, in the first century wrote, because the Pharisees fast on Wednesday, on what, uh, yeah, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and we don't want to be like them. So that attitude was already beginning, right from the beginning, just right right out of the gate, church was fun like that. Um, and and then it's, it mentions, right after baptism, it says, and, and this is what we do uh, about this breaking of bread. It says, on the Lord's own day, gather together break bread, and give thanks, first confessing your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. Okay, now, again, we don't go back and be like, that's what we need to be like. Okay, no one uses the Didache as their church bylaws today. No one's even suggesting that would be a good idea, but it's important. It's an important document that shows that communion every Sunday, every Sunday, was something that had become a habit for the first in, uh, for the church in its first generation. The generation after the apostles were gathering around, confessing their sins, and breaking bread together every week. The people who were taught by the apostles, who had known the people we read about in Scripture, were people who met on Sunday every week to break bread. Not just a meal either. And the sentence comes after the bit about baptism. There's a section talking about rites and rituals. And it specifies that confession should take place prior to the meal, which it calls a kind of sacrifice. Weekly communion, taken seriously, was the habit of the church in the second century, the generation after the apostles. Now, in the second, uh, second century, excuse me, uh, there's also the time where a whole bunch of heresies just started popping up everywhere, right? 
And of course, Paul prophesied that. He saw that coming in Acts chapter 20. He says there's going to be come some from among you, the church. There will be like wolves. That's bad news. You've got to watch yourself. Jesus addresses some wrong thinking in his letters to the seven churches in Asia in the book of Revelation. False teaching came in real early and strong. It wasn't a surprise, but it was a sad reality because heresies, right? They're bad. However, it can be a really handy problem for people who like church history because it gave everyone something to write about, and we have the letters. So there's a pastor named Ignatius of Antioch. He wrote a letter to the church in Smyrna, the same one that Jesus sent the message to in Revelation, this uh, uh, church in in Asia, modern-day Turkey. He would have written this letter uh, no later than 110 AD, so about 78 years after the crucifixion. We're talking early days. And in this letter, he's, he's warning the heretics, man. He's saying, there is some bad ideas coming in your church. And he says, there's those who denied that Jesus was actually human, that he was uh, maybe divine or a kind of divine heavenly being. They denied the real resurrection and denied a bodily resurrection of Jesus and a future bodily resurrection for his saints. But the thing is, these heretics were really easy to spot because they refused communion. And Ignatius says they abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ who suffered for our sins and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. There's a few interesting things about this. The one historians usually point out is the literal sense in which Ignatius seems to take things. The Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ which suffered for our sins. But there's another thing worth pointing out. The heretics, those sneaking into the church, spreading bad doctrine. They weren't just notable because they didn't believe something. They were notable because they avoided certain practices, communion and prayers. You know, it's possible to believe all the right things on paper, sign your name on the dotted line of the statement of faith, and still act like a heretic. If you don't pray, if you don't take communion, Ignatius would spot you in the church as one who doesn't believe in the humanity of Christ or the real bodily resurrection, which are essential Christian truths. Seventy years later, around 180 AD, a pastor named Irenaeus will make a similar argument. He'll hold up communion as the standard against which heretics ought to be measured. He wrote a book called Against Heresies, which is a great title for a book. And he challenged those who had a dualist view of the world. You know, flesh is bad, spirit is good, ne'er the two shall meet, that kind of idea. Body doesn't matter, only what's up here is important. Irenaeus uses communion to prove them wrong. He says, When therefore the cup that has been mixed and the bread that has been made, uh, the bread that has been made, uh, receive the word of God and become the Eucharist and the body of Christ, from which the substance of our flesh is increased and supported, how can they affirm that the flesh is incapable of receiving the gift of God, which is life eternal, which flesh is nourished from the body and blood of the Lord and is a member of him? He's defending the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Because there's no saying, no, 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 the, the afterlife, all, all the good stuff about your religion, it's all just spiritual. None of it actually has any use in this material realm. And we won't, we won't actually raise from the dead, and Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead. That's not, that's physical. That's less good. He says, no, no, no. He gave us his body, and we take his body into our bodies. And when we eat that bread, it nourishes our bodies. And he's saying, how can you say you can't receive the gift of God? Communion becomes the standard with which to measure bad doctrine and the heretics that preach them. When false doctrine creeps into the church, the defenders of the faith go straight to communion, not to defend communion, but to use it to defend the truth about who Jesus is. Let's say in the second century for a little more, go back to Justin Martyr. Great name, right? A guy named Justin Martyr. He was the, actually, 
You might ask your parents, why did you name me Martyr? Do you know something I don't know? Um, but anyway, uh, he was the first great Christian apologist after the apostles. He wrote to the Roman government, which was starting to mistreat Christians pretty badly, and say, you know what? We're not actually not worth killing. Uh, let me explain this to you. We make good citizens. The Romans and others thought that the Christians were cannibals and perverts, really. They heard things about love feasts and drew some really unwholesome conclusions, brotherly love and all that. And then they heard about eating flesh and drinking blood, and you can imagine the conclusions that they drew. They're like, it's a cult, and it's the worst. They're cannibals. we got to get rid of these people. And so those accusations being levied against Christians, Justin Martyr writes this about 155 AD. He says, the food we call Eucharist, which no one is allowed to share, except the one who believes that our teaching is true. This is for Christians only. And who has been washed with the washing that is for the remission of sins and unto regeneration, and so lives as Christ handed down. For not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ our Savior, having been made flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise have we been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word and from which our blood and flesh are nourished is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. Justin Martyr clarifies for the suspicious Romans that it is bread and it is wine at their meeting, not people. They're not killing someone and bringing them in and eating them. That was an actual rumor that was going around. He's like, no, that's not what we do. But we don't take this meal as a common meal. It's something more. I think it's worth noting that in order to refute charges of eating people, Justin Martyr does not say, no, 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 no. We're just thinking about him. We're just remembering him. It's not really him. He's in heaven, obviously, and it's really all just spiritual. No, he says, we're not killing anybody. It's bread and wine, but yeah, it's Jesus. And the church read Justin Martyr and collectively nodded its head and said, yeah, I guess that checks out. Now, the ability of these early church fathers to speak about communion as the body and blood of Christ, it continues on through the centuries into the Middle Ages and admittedly takes on some forms that make us uncomfortable, as any good family history will do. Amen? But what, what I want you to see is that the church was talking about it from day one, and they were continuing in the breaking of bread from day one. We as Christians have been sorting out what all this means at the table since the beginning. And whether it's a book of rules for early church practice or a pastoral letter to a church, warning about heretics, or an address given to Caesar in defense of Christianity, in each of these cases, communion is mentioned as something essential for the Christians. And in each example, we see it as an act of receiving Christ. Nowhere do we see the emphasis on remembering the crucifixion as if they would have forgotten it. They were still being crucified at this time. They didn't need to remember what crucifixion was. Rather, it was for the church, as I mentioned last week, a way of meeting with Jesus who had been made flesh for them. Fast forward a few hundred years, we have some of the writings of a pastor named Hilary of Poitiers, who served in the 300s. Different heresies. You fast forward a little bit, different heresies now. The Arian controversy was in full swing. The Arians, named for a guy named Arius, believed that Jesus wasn't really God. Remember earlier, they were like, he's not really human. Well, fast forward in time, now they're saying he's not really God. He was a created being. And Hillary was called the hammer of the Arians because he did not have a whole lot of patience for these guys. But the standard that he measured these heretics against was, once again, communion. He says, how does that match up with the practice of the church? How does that match up? How does what you believe match up with what we do when we eat bread and we take wine? Remember, Ignatius and Irenaeus, 
they were arguing with people who didn't believe Jesus was really flesh. And they said, you can't believe that and take communion. He said, it's my body, which means he had a body. You have to believe that Jesus had a body. Now, Hilary of Poitiers is dealing with the opposite problem. Those who believe Jesus was human, but not fully God. And he says, you can't believe that and take communion. Now, this person, again, speaks of communion very literally, like Ignatius, which some of the reformers would eventually take issue with. And don't worry, we'll get to those guys soon. You'll feel a lot more at home. But what I want you to see is where he draws the line on Christ's divinity. It's a non-negotiable issue. He says, about the truth of his flesh and blood, there is no room for doubt. For the Lord's own word and by our faith, we know that it is truly flesh and truly blood. And when we have received and drunk these realities, it comes about that we are in Christ and Christ in us. Is this not the truth? Let it happen that those who deny that Christ is God deny this also. He is in us through his flesh, and we are in him, and that by which we are in him is in God. He goes on to, to say, essentially, a mere man could not unite all of us through a ritual meal like this. That's not how people talk. That's not how you talk with your friends at a dinner party, saying, this is my body, take it, and you'll all become one, and I'll be in you. Like, that's not how meals work. He says, only God could do this. And God has been uniting his church together through Christ's body, as Christ's body, for a long time, 300 years. <laughs> and he says, if you deny Jesus as God, don't take communion, because what you're doing here is something divine. You're celebrating a divine person. Now, certainly, there's a lot that you just heard that probably sounds a little too Roman Catholic for most of you. And I would just remind you that when we look at our ancestors, our family history, there's a lot of stuff that makes us uncomfortable. And we're not looking at any of this saying, that's what I want to be when I grow up. But we also need to remember that everything we've looked at so far happens before there was Protestant, Catholic, anything like that. It's before the Council of Nicaea, before people would say there was, you know, a Roman church at all. The literal language may be uncomfortable to our ears, but it's not because it's Catholic, uh, as it predates any sort of division between Catholic and Protestant. But speaking of Protestants, let's fast forward 1,100 years, just like most ch church history textbooks do, okay? From the early church to the Reformers, uh, for better or for worse, most of us probably don't feel much of a connection to Ignatius of Antioch or Hilary of Poitiers, but there's Calvin and there's Luther and there's these guys that we recognize. We're like, oh yeah, like those guys. Um, the big names, the big three names that you need to look at when you talk about communion in a Protestant context is Luther and Zwingli and Calvin. And then by way of introduction, we've got uh, Jan Hus or, or John Hus, but his, his actually name means goose. So we'll call him Johnny Goose. Uh, Johnny Goose was, Jan Hus, was a priest uh, whose writings would have a great influence on Luther and the other reformers. He was calling out abuses in the church government way before it was cool. Um, Luther would uh, challenge the church on doctrinal grounds, right, in the 1500s. Uh, Jan Hus was more concerned with the moral failings in its leadership. Um, and, and Hus had things to say about communion. Mainly, he said that we should have more of it. That was his big thing. And we should have both the bread and the wine, not just part of it, not just the priest taking it. People need to take communion. Now, one of the problems he had with the church government of his day was simply that the church wasn't offering the sacrament enough. And this is important for us to see clearly. We're trying to make sense of this. It's a common misunderstanding to believe that the reformers were trying to downplay the importance of communion, that they were wanting to get rid of communion as a central part of the Christian worship and replace it with the Bible. Move the table, put in a pulpit. 
Um, this has been an accusation against Protestants all, all, all the time. That's not a clear view of what was going on with most of the reformers. In some parts of Europe, the church offered communion once a year, just on Easter, Easter Sunday only. It was people like Jan Hus who influenced a shift back to more frequent communion, like we saw with the writings of Justin Martyr and the Didache every Sunday. Most of the reformers thought of their project as one of bringing the church back to its roots. They didn't want to make a new church. They wanted the Church of the Apostles as pure and as close as they could get to it. And one of the ways they did this was to bring back weekly communion for all the people. And again, today, most of us, many of us, think of frequent communion as looking really more Catholic-ish. But frequent communion in the Roman Catholic Church is the result of the Reformation. It's of reformers saying, you're doing it wrong. They actually did listen on a few things. One of them was more frequent communion. It was the reformers who were pushing for the church to offer communion more frequently as the church had done in the earlier centuries. Also, the reformers, except Zwingli, who we'll get to, continue to speak about communion in very literal terms, even though to modern ears this sounds very out of place. So let's talk about Martin Luther a little bit. He's pretty much the poster boy for the Reformation, right? Uh, he was one of the most vocal and prolific opponents of what he called superstition within the church. Uh, so what did he say about communion? Well, he, he took it very seriously and very literally. He said it was the body and blood of Christ. This is what Luther wrote. He said, for my part, I cannot fathom, I don't understand, how the bread is the body of Christ, yet I will take my reason captive to the obedience of Christ and clinging simply to his words, firmly believing not only that the body of Christ is in the bread, but that the bread is the body of Christ. What does it matter if philosophy cannot fathom this? The Holy Spirit's greater than Aristotle. He says, I don't get it. I don't, don't ask me the hard stuff. I don't know how it works. Please don't ask me to explain bread and body and all this stuff. I, I don't know. But you know what I, I do know? God is better than your philosophy books. That's what I know. And I'm going to take Christ when I take communion. Luther, like those in the early church, saw communion as a way of meeting with Christ. At this point, virtually no one argued about whether or not Christ was really there. The debate actually wasn't about whether Jesus is here. It was about whether or not the bread was still there. Really, because transubstantiation at the time in the Roman church said, that's not bread. And everyone's like, it kind of looks like bread to me. But no one argued about whether Jesus was present. The doctrine of, of uh, you know, transubstantiation and that stuff was rejected by the reformers, not because it said Christ is here, but be, because it said the bread isn't there anymore. And the reformers said, I, I think it is, actually. But while acknowledging that bread is bread and wine is wine, the Osberg Confession, which is a Lutheran confession, it says, our churches teach that the body and blood of Christ are truly present and are distributed to those who eat in the supper of the Lord. They disapprove of those who teach otherwise. That last phrase is very true. Disapprove the Lutherans would. Uh, Luther would spend the first half of his ministry railing against the Pope and all the abuses of the Roman church, but his strongest language would be reserved for another reformer, Ulrich Zwingli. That's another Protestant who disagreed with Luther on the nature of communion. Uh, let's talk about Zwingli. He was a Swiss priest, very influ influential in Swiss politics, died in war, actually. He had a son and a live-in girlfriend who was not the mother of his son. Not great for a priest. Um, let's broaden that, actually. Not great, period. Um, and he, uh, he, he, yeah, he quit his job and helped start a war in Switzerland, which is hard to start a war in Switzerland, if you think about it. They're kind of known for not being super into that. But his, his views on communion were unique for his time. He had read uh, an article 
by a Dutch humanist named Cornelius Hone, where the guy suggested that when Jesus says, this is my body, he meant this signifies my body. Way before this sentence was spoken in 1990s politics, th these are the guys that uh, would say it all depends on what the meaning of the word is is. So the idea that is could mean symbolize probably doesn't seem too controversial to any of anyone here, but it was revolutionary at the time. Uh, Zwingli took this interpretation as his own, and he debated it with Lutherans and Catholics alike. Um, and I'm pretty sure that most people in non-denominational churches such as ours, if we read Zwingli's position, would probably agree with most of what he says. He held that communion, uh, the communion that we have with Jesus is through faith. We agree. So would Luther. So did the church fathers. But then he goes a little further and suggests that the same kind of closeness that might be had with Jesus when we take bread and wine in communion can and should be had whenever we eat any meal. They're all the same. It's just a meal. Again, doing the opposite of what the church fathers and Paul said about, like, we don't take this like it's common. He's like, well, you shouldn't take anything as it's common. Well, when nothing com is common, everything's common. He says, you know, you, uh, it's any meal. Just pray for your meals, be thankful. That's communion. There, you met with Jesus. Stop making a big deal out of it. If you missed last week's message, please go listen to it. I would strongly suggest that the way in which we meet with Jesus in communion is not simply replaced by any other act of faith. Just like meeting with him in fellowship with the body of the church is unique and different than Zoom calls. Uh, meeting with him in reading of scripture and in prayer is different than imagining yourself meeting him in reading the scripture and prayer. Now Zwingli's main point was that we meet with Jesus when we think about him. Therefore, it makes little difference whether you're thinking about him at church during communion or at work eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And he famously described the sacrament of communion as a sort of wedding ring given to us. The ring isn't the person, right? It's not the person, nor is it their presence. But it reminds us of the person and our commitment to them and theirs to us. For Zwingli, the emphasis in the upper room was the word remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. And in his time, even the other reformers thought he was just nuts. Uh, Luther especially. Now remember Hilary of Poitiers, okay, the hammer of the Arians? He had already made the argument against Zwingli's position hundreds of years before when he was talking to people who said Jesus wasn't God. He said, if Christ truly assumed the body, or sorry, the flesh of our body, and if Christ is truly a man born of Mary, and if we truly receive his flesh and his blood in the mystery, how is anyone going to assert that we are speaking merely of a union of wills and good intentions? In writing back and forth, Luther, who, let's face it, was not a nice man, called Zwingli Satan, and uh, he said he would rather go back to the Catholic Church and have real blood than to join with someone who believed what Zwingli believed and have only real wine. Come on, man. He warned all of his followers, don't have anything to do with Zwingli. He is not of the same spirit as us. This is not good. Again, family history can be a little embarrassing. Communion, as well as speaking of a, the presence of Christ and meeting with Christ, is supposed to be an example of Christian unity. If you believe differently about communion than I do, I still want to have communion with you. This is an open table. Communion based on Jesus is still far more important than any difference of opinion we may have, have to fight about about what the nature of bread is. But they managed to fight a lot. So after Luther and Zwingli comes John Calvin. Um, it's kind of the, the next generation. He happens a little later in history. Calvin didn't think Luther had it right. It was far too literal. Uh, it seemed a step too close to uh, cannibalism for his taste. Taste. Uh-huh. 
Uh, and he was sure that uh, he was sure that Zwingli was coming up short, too symbolic. He's like, if everything's in our imagination, nothing's real. I can't. There's nothing I can grab onto with that. So, in an attempt to reconcile the beliefs of these two men, he really wanted to get these two camps to agree on something. And instead, he came up with a third option. Uh, he disagreed with Luther that the physical body of Jesus is present, but he also disagreed with Zwingli that the only value in the meal is your own pious thoughts. He does not believe that the meal is merely symbolic, not an empty sign, but rather a means of grace. It's a symbol, of course. Of course it's a symbol. But it's a symbol on a button. And if you push the button, it does something. That was kind of... I don't. He didn't use the button analogy. I just did. But in addition to the... The term real presence, this phrase means of grace, is the other big doctrine where Protestant theology of communion is concerned. In other words, in taking communion, according to Calvin, we are not only remembering something, we are experiencing something. He believed that Christ is really present in the bread and wine, but to the answer of how, he just said the Holy Spirit. Come on, have you met him? He does a lot of stuff. He says, even though it seems unbelievable that Christ's flesh separated from us by such a great distance penetrates to us, so that it becomes our food, let us remember how far the secret power of the Holy Spirit towers above all our senses. The Spirit tru truly unites things separated in space. The emphasis for Calvin, and as we read for Luther before, was just like, don't ask me how it works. I'm just saying that I'm believing I'm receiving Christ. The emphasis for Calvin wasn't so much that Christ was coming to us in bread, but rather that we are caught up into heaven when we eat it. And his view is similar to Scottish reformer John Knox, who says, First, we confess that it is a holy action ordained by God in which the Lord Jesus, by earthly and visible things, like bread and wine, lifts us up into heavenly and invisible things. You, There's things you see, there's things you touch, there's things you taste, and there's blessings that you can't see that are better than anything you've touched or tasted. This attempt of Calvin's to reconcile two opposing parties resulted again, in a third option, and theologians still argue about them all today. And of course, with the Reformation and the splintering off of many Reformed groups, each one had its own interpretation about communion. The Anglican Church went one way, and they came up with their own interpretation of what's going on. Uh, they disagreed with the other three guys and still held that communion was important, and you should take it seriously. Uh, the Baptists come on the scene in the 1600s, and we get along with them on pretty much everything, right, except that we dance and play cards. Uh, and they, and they, they also had their own view of things. And, and they were mindful of the importance of the presence of Christ in the ritual. In 1689, the Baptists get together, they have their confession, the London Baptist Confession, and they go to great lengths to point, point out that these are not empty signs, these are not just memories. Baptists have a reputation of being fairly Zwinglian. Um, they're not real high liturgy or anything. But listen to what the, uh, the London Baptist Confession says. It says, Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements and this ordinance, do then also inwardly, by faith, really and indeed, and spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in this, that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to the outward senses. Even the Baptists, guys, are saying we feed upon Christ and him crucified. He is really and indeed, those are the words, really and indeed present to the believers who receive this in a worthy manner. This is not a symbol of his absence, but his presence. 
This is not something that gains its importance by the best of our intentions, but by his intention to unite himself to us, to be our food, our nourishment, our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction. Now, as you've heard, the concept of presence was central to the entire discussion. The debates and disagreements about communion have historically been centered around the question, how is he here? How is he with us? How does it work? Is, is it a spiritual presence? Well, of course it is. God is spirit, and so are you. Is it a physical presence? Well, some have said more yes. Uh, some have said yes, though I think this is an unhelpful way of thinking of things. Of course, the bread is material, so there is a physical element to this thing. It's probably better to call it a metaphysical presence because it's beyond the merely physical. But the real argument, the arguments were almost always about how Christ is present, not whether or not he's present. Calvin and Luther would affirm a real presence. Zwingli and guys like Louis Sperry Schaefer, who I mentioned last week, would reject it. Uh, is Christ really present in communion? Now remember, real doesn't mean physical. Just like spiritual doesn't mean imaginary. And the spiritual food Israel ate was real food, and it was physical food. But more than that, it was spiritual food. The, the true reality is God who is spirit. He's more real than anything you've weighed or measured. The question of real presence is not, does the bread turn into meat when you say the right words? The question of real presence is simply, is Christ here? Is he willing to dwell with us in this way? Is he willing to meet with me? now, here, in this way. Can I be united with God? Yes. Can I be with him? Yes. Is this a legitimate and unique way of meeting with the resurrected Christ, or is it no different from just thinking about him? Does Christ give us his presence? Now, here's the thing. Zwingli lost the arguments in his life, but his position won out in the end. He is part of the answer to the question, how do we get here? It was because of his strong emphasis on a non-literal symbolic interpretation that we've eventually come to a place where people really believe that the communion meal is nothing more than a helpful way for you to think about the cross. It's God's flannel graph. It's a visual aid to help you recall something. This is the majority uh, opinion in evangelical churches today. As such, communion has come to be seen by many as an optional, even unnecessary habit that inconveniently gets stuck in the occasional worship service, an interruption that has to be gone through in order to get back to the real service, you know, the kind with the music and the preaching. I want to repeat something from last week. While I am intent on delivering to you preaching of the scriptures every single week, my hope and my goal is not to give you teaching, just as my hope and goal is not to give you bread. I want to give you Christ, and I want you to feast on him through whatever means he has provided. I want our church to be a people who feasts on Christ. And looking at a small handful of Christians who have lived before us, what I want to show you is this. The early church took communion every week. They took it seriously, examining themselves, confessing their sins. As the, the Didache said, exam, confessing your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. The early church, as Ignatius of Antioch wrote, identified heretics not only by their doctrine, but by their refusal to take communion. The early church defended the gospel against heresies by upholding communion as a meeting place with God, who is fully man and fully divine Christ. 
The early church, as Justin Martyr wrote, did not receive this meal as common bread or common wine. It's not just a meal. The reformers, from the time of John Huss, saw the need to return to frequent communion because he saw hungry people who weren't being fed. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Ignatius of Lyon, uh, or sorry, uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, Hilary of Poitiers, uh, Augustine, who I forgot to talk about entirely. All of these men, uh, these men spoke of communion as a means of receiving the graces that Christ offers to us. Luther, Calvin, even the Baptists all confess that in some way or the other, couldn't agree on the mechanics, and you don't have to, but in some way or another, this is a way to feed upon Christ. This became a central part of Christian worship from the beginning of the Christian church, and it was taken seriously because Christ is worth taking seriously. When people like Jan Haas wanted to return to a place of purity and reject the moral decline of the culture around him, what did he do? He sought more frequent communion. Now, admittedly, this was a different kind of sermon. I don't even know if you could call it a sermon, and I'll apologize for that if I need to. But I'll say it again, that you, you don't have to get used to this. Next week, there's going to be more Bible passages than you can keep up with. Just wait. Uh, but also next week, also next week, when you come to church, you're going to meet with Jesus. Jesus will welcome you to his table. And I want you to prepare yourself. I want you to examine yourselves and seek to discern the Lord's body. It is Christ himself who we are longing to be with. It is Christ himself that we want to be united with. He is our feast, as we sang today. Christ is willing to meet with you. Let's whet our appetites. Let's grow hungry for his presence. Please pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for your kindness to us, your blessings on our church. And we see that in all the blessings you've given to us, you are the source of all these blessings. So we say, come, thou fount of every blessing. Come and, and tune our hearts, change our appetites, change the, uh, the, our, our wayward hearts so that we can focus on you and long for you and hunger and thirst for you. I pray that we would be like Joseph of Arimathea who craved the body of Jesus. Bless us, bless your church with all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Saints, you are sent.